Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host. With us, our special guest, Kelly Flanagan, Dr. Kelly Flanagan, a licensed clinical psychologist and co-founder of Artisan Clinical Associates in Naperville, Illinois. And in 2012, he discovered writing was the thing he never knew that uh, he always wanted to do. So he began a now popular blog called Untangled. And Kelly is married to another psychologist, so we want to find out if they ever fought. Welcome to the program. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> You're very welcome. So do people, is that difficult being married to a fellow psychologist? It's, it's hard because you have to uh, always make sure you're off the clock and asking what they think instead of pretending like <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> right? So, uh, yes, you have to just be a husband and a wife instead of a therapist. Yeah. That's not always easy to do. Yeah, because in all seriousness, I hear that it, it can be difficult being married that way because you, you constantly psychoanalyze each other. Well, your job is to, as a therapist, is to try to understand um, the life of the person who's in front of you, the inner life, and uh, and sometimes you can get carried away with that. And in marriage, when you do that too much, it's just called codependence. So you you just need to ask and communicate well instead of trying to guess at what they're thinking. Well, you must be a nice guy because your book is called Lovable, Embracing What is Truest About You So You Can Truly Embrace Your Life. Can you tell us about your book? Yeah, that's a bit of a Rorschach, isn't it? Uh, well, so I, uh, you know, I started blogging in 2012, and uh, shortly after I started, it, at first it was just a professional blog. It was meant to promote my services to people in the community. Um, but shortly after I started blogging, I wrote a letter to my daughter, uh, and I read the letter to my wife, and she said, "You know, I think you, I think you should put that on your blog. I think a lot of people need to hear that." And I did that. And that letter went viral, and then another letter to my daughter went viral, hmm. and uh, we ended up on the, the Today Show. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a, a surreal ride. And um, and so after you're on a show like the Today Show and you're writing, you know, agents will um, – uh, start calling and I got connected with a really great agent and uh, and she said to me she said Kelly so you're you're writing all these letters to your kids I think you should write a parenting book and so I, I went home and I said to my wife you know Kathy thinks I should write a parenting book and my wife said uh, there's no way you should be writing a parenting book you've got no business <laughs> honest <that."> feedback <laughs> yep. and she's right and we started talking about it and what we realized is we were getting some feedback like you know I love this letter that you wrote to your daughter I'm going to save it for my daughter but what we were getting more frequently was uh you know i needed to hear this i needed to hear the words hmm. that you to your kids and it slowly started to dawn on me that the the response to the letters is because there was a little kid in everyone reading these letters who was needing to hear what oh. i was writing to my kids and and so that's that idea sort of shaped the writing of lovable that i was going to write this book to my kids reminding them of the most important things that I've learned along the way and that I hope that they'll that they'll learn along the way. Um, but that it was also a letter to the little kid in me and a letter to the little kid in every reader. Hey, man, isn't it like the inner child in all of us? That It's still, I don't know, you can't like take high school out of you as you grow up and everything. And, and we, we don't change. Maybe I'll ask you as a psychotherapist, a psychologist, um, do we tend to not grow up sometimes? Right. It's a great question. You know, you can't take high school out of you, but the good news is you can't take what came before high school out of you either. And that's sort of the thrust of lovable is that 
we think we have to go through life building a self and building an identity when the reality is we have to, to get reconnected with the identity that we came into the world with, our true self. And, uh, and so uh, having a self is less a, a construction project. It's more of an excavation project and returning to that little kid we once were and learning from them who we are. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the inner child thing, it, I even cringe when I hear that yeah, myself. I thought so. <laughs> you know, it feels so cliche, but uh, I, I can't. I can't help it. I mm. can't help but return to it because there's there's just something very true about it. So so yeah, lovable is about the the little kid that we came into the world as and getting reconnected with that true part of us and and having to frankly go through uh, all of the difficulties in our life that that caused us to bury that true self and bury that little one inside of us mm-hmm. so that we can get get back to who we once were. Sure. And it's amazing how you cataloged all these letters. A lot of people, they go through life and they say, oh, I wish I took more pictures of my kids. But you catalog things in time. I mean, in real time where your kids can go back and say, wow, that's what you were thinking at that time. And what does that do to a child? You know, uh, time will tell. Um, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. My oldest is 13 now, Aiden, and he. Um, once I had a final a version of Lovable, um, not in printed form, but just on my hard drive, I, I read it to him. We read it as a sort of a bedtime book, a chapter at a time. So he's he's read the entire book, and uh, I think it's been affirming of him. Um, I think he probably wishes that on a day to day basis I was a lot more like the guy who wrote the book, um, because it's thing to write something and be able to edit it it's another thing in the stress of real life to to live it out it's honest yeah we've had those conversations um and so you know i think um i I think time will tell i had a friend say recently you know i love what you've done i'm going to open up an email account and i'm going to i'm going to email my kids this this sort of dummy email account and someday i'm going to give them the password so they could just go in and read everything that i've been loving about them and (laughs) thinking about them all along um so i guess i'm doing that but a little bit more publicly yeah and is it just you or does your wife kind of write these letters too well, my wife is my first and foremost editor, so uh, <laughs> I'm I'm the writer, and uh, Smart. she she and that's my strength, and her strength mm-hmm. is editing. So she'll come in and say, you know, circle a paragraph and say, "Ugh, like this this doesn't make any sense." But uh, and they always tell you the truth. She, she is very good at being honest with me. And, and for, in fact, at first she was so honest and I was so sort of insecure about my writing that uh, I wouldn't be able to take feedback face-to-face. <laughs> she would have to send it to me because if she told me face-to-face, I'd get defensive. Um, but I've, I've learned to take it and learn that she's, uh, she's very wise and is almost always giving me good feedback even if I don't like to hear it at first. And it's something that almost didn't happen. I understand that in reading your book that this almost never materialized. It kind of took a while because you're busy in your practice yeah yeah writing is something that you know when i look back now i realize that i uh, i wrote probably 100 pages of a novel in grad school um i don't know where that's at now um and i'd written prior to that so writing had always been something that i wanted to do but i never really knew that i never really let myself pay attention to that desire um and so as I began writing and blogging and working on this book, I'm obviously also been working full time as a psychologist, and only in the last two years have I started to dial that back and, and focus more on the writing. So, um, so yeah, writing happened for a long time at five in the morning until the kids woke up at seven o'clock, and, and then um, you know occasionally in the evenings, but certainly on the margins of everything else we were doing. Yeah. So from the Today Show to the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show, you're moving up. 
I'll tell you what, let's give out the address because to get on the Today Show, like I don't know how many people that I've ever met, you know, that it's drkellyflanagan.com. Is there another one or is that the main address? That's the main address. Okay. Um, it, yeah, drkellyflanagan.com. There's also, if people are interested in Lovable, they can go to lovablethebook.com, um, but they can also get there through my website. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it was a pretty surreal experience. Uh, the timing of me publishing that letter and uh, the Today Show doing a, a segment on, or a series, a week-long series on women's body image and needing a male <laughs> because they didn't have any men to come on the show. <laughs> And my, my letter happened to go viral at the right time. Now, is this the real Today Show or the one with Kelly Gifford or, or Kathy Gifford? <laughs> it's the one with, yeah, um, it, we were interviewed um, by uh, Natalie Morales. And, oh, wow. And uh, Willie Geist. So Very good. Sort of the real the real deal, I guess. Well, Dr. Flanagan, my nana, you know, I had a nana, and she's not alive anymore, but from Boca Raton, Florida, she said, Michael, uh, you have to be a somebody in this world. You have to be a somebody. And now you say that everybody is a somebody. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think the, um, I think the theme of of lovable is that everybody is a somebody and everybody is a nobody too. That there's something really beautiful in being an ordinary person. And uh, you know, early in life we encounter this thing called shame, which is the mm. message that who we are, uh, our true self that we entered the world with isn't good enough. And that shame then sort of drives us to feel like, well, hey, if I'm not, if I'm not enough, then I'm going to have to do something that is more than enough, right? I have to become a somebody because I'm a nobody. And, uh, and the message of, of lovable is that actually, yeah, you are ordinary. And there's, there's something really beautiful about being ordinary you, um, about embracing yourself so that you can actually embrace the passions that, that, that are embedded within you and start to do those on a day-to-day basis. That's a pretty good life. Um, and while we may, we may feel like, you know, on any given day that one or more of us has to save the world, um, that if all of us just practice our passions in a way that, uh, uh, was peaceful um, and in a way that we were just pursuing the things that we want and the things that we enjoy, um, then the world would change, but it wouldn't be up to any one of us. We'd be all doing it together. You know, something you mentioned Stephen Colbert. We had N.T. Wright on the program, and his name came up, too, because he was on his program, uh, The Colbert Report. But I thought it was pretty riveting, that chapter where you talked about not being afraid to fail and also improv and how he went through a lot of i guess sorrow and trials in his life with his um was his dad died and brother died yeah so he was um the youngest of a number of siblings and the the remaining brother living at home with him at the time and his father um, i believe died in a plane crash uh, which left just him living at home with Hmm. his mother Um, obviously an incredible tragic and, and traumatic event and uh and Stephen Colbert uh sort of credits improv with learning how to recover from that because in improv you've got to get up on stage and you have to be willing to embrace the messiness and the mistakes and uh and as he says you have to learn how to love the bomb you have to learn how to love that it was it don't go yep that and, really uh, got my attention on that because he wasn't afraid to kind of just uh, fall out and and how can I say he kept saying you didn't kill me you didn't kill me you didn't kill me that's you know he was mentioning that with every uh, can you talk a little more about that mm. yeah I, I love that too I mean he was sort of ministering to me in that um, and, but you know uh, this idea that 
and you know I forget who it was that said it, but um, when you survive the thing you, the thing you never thought you could survive, um, that's when you realize that you're going to be okay. I think that's what he's saying there. You know, is that he gets up on stage, and we all think that making a, a mess of things and making mistakes in front of a big audience is going to be the end of us. You know, It'll, uh, and then you discover, well, I survived that. You know, I survived that one too. And uh, and I think we begin to develop courage in that sense of um, we don't have to be perfect. Um, our messes are okay. What matters is that we're showing up and doing what we love. Um, and that's certainly something I've had to remember as going through this process of writing the book is and, and doing these kinds of interviews. I had a I had an interview I did several weeks ago, and I got off of it, and I just thought, oh, my gosh, that was horrible. <laughs> you, were off, you were off today. And, and I had probably about 48 hours after that interview where that voice of shame inside of me mm. was just e- eating away at me. Yo, you missed your chance. This was an opportunity to you know, reach a, a bigger audience and, and so on and so forth. And then on a bike ride about two days later, I finally heard this voice of grace within me break through, and it, and it didn't it didn't say oh no Kelly you did a great job or oh it's not that big a deal the voice I heard within me said you know what Kelly it's hard to learn on a big stage but mm. I'm proud of you I'm proud of you for getting up there hmm. um, and and I think that's sort of what Stephen Colbert is getting at is you, you learn on a big stage by making mistakes and uh, and that's sort of what courage is all about yeah and look at him now he's like number one in yeah. the Tonight Show yeah. And you get the sense he's pretty fearless, which is what makes him so good. He is. I should say he beat the Tonight Show all the time. And so what do you hope to accomplish with this book, though? What's the, the main goal? Mm. That's a great question. Um, the the thing that drives has always driven me is, well, <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend who's a... a a therapist and uh, um, he says that once you once you realize why you became a therapist you have to come up with a better reason <laughs> and uh, so it hasn't always been the reason for being a therapist I think I was trying to um, ease a lot of my own demons in doing that but um, the better reason that I came up with is that I, I truly enjoy having a front seat as people um, move towards their pain rather than away from it which is what so much of us are inclined to do it's the, the natural instinct move towards their pain and and begin to redeem it and to heal it um, and to find comfort and clarity in their lives and so um, you know it was probably about six months before I started my blog and I, I had this client who was an entrepreneur businessman and it, you know what I was doing what we were doing together was, was helping and he was healing and he said to me you know you could make a lot more money if you uh, if you reached a, a larger number of people and I was like yeah that's that's probably that's probably true and he said this for several weeks and then finally he came in one week with a bit of a twinkle in his eye and he said you know you could help a lot more people if you reached a bigger audience and I go now now you're talking my language <laughs> um, and so I, I that that has really been the thrust of, of lovable is um, I write because I love to write but of course you're hoping that it reaches people and that it provides comfort and clarity in their lives mm. I was gonna say I'm a mental health uh, registered intern so I have a long way to go but if you want to talk about any of your issues we can you know <laughs> I'm sure you got better you know higher uh, qualified people to do that so let me um, ask you you know the, the riveting moment in your life where there was a bit of a change maybe more of a sensitivity there was a disabled girl getting ready to go on a bus and you're at this stop sign stop 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 would you talk about that i appreciate you bringing that up because i know we've talked a lot about the today show you know we talked about this 
kind of sort of these big events that have happened in my life, like writing a book. Um, but but really, again, the the thrust of Lovable is that uh, if we're chasing those things, we're going to be pretty unsatisfied. But if we can can embrace the the ordinary moments and the ordinariness of our lives, we're going to find an awful lot of peace and, and joy. And that was one of those moments where it was it was after the the Today Show, and we actually had a film crew that was it was again surreal coming to our house to interview myself and my daughter for a documentary. Um, by the way, it's called A Voice That Carries, and it's actually going to be coming out this fall. Hmm. Um, but, Where? Uh, Where is it coming out? You know, um, I think it'll probably be coming out in limited in theaters, uh, in limited really? venues. Yeah, probably in major major cities, and then they'll see how it does, and then maybe it'll go to Netflix. Um, but uh, it, the the message of the movie was just about the importance of um, dads speaking into their daughters' lives, and uh, and so I had this film crew coming, and I. Uh, I was rushing my kids to school, and I still needed to go pick up bagels and all that. You know, bagels that nobody will ever eat, but you got to. <laughs> and uh, and so, but there's there's traffic everywhere, and I'm getting frustrated. And and what's happening is I'm feeling superior to these people around me. Right? I've got more important things to do than these people. They need to get out of my way. And I turned down a side street to try to get around traffic. And sure enough, uh, you know, right as I turn. There's one of those short yellow school buses down the street, and the stop sign's coming out, and uh, and I'm forced to sit there, and I'm forced to to watch this mother uh, walk her um, physically disabled daughter to the school bus, and, and to watch the the bus driver help her to her seat and buckle her in, and and the whole time this the stop sign is you know, is flashing, the school bus stop sign flashing stop 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 and uh and what i took away from that moment is what what's it telling me to stop doing it's telling me to stop comparing it's it's telling me to stop thinking that somehow because i've got a movie crew coming to the house that that my morning is more important than anybody else's that that little girl uh that little girl is just as worthy and just as valuable and just as important as me um and it rearranged the whole morning um so um, that's another thing. I guess I hope Lovable helps us all to slow down and stop and take a breath and, and realize that not only are we worthy, but so is everybody else around us. Yeah, well, you have the right heart, but let's give you a plug anyway. Since you're <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kelly Flanagan, Dr. Kelly Flanagan, the book is called Lovable, Embracing What is Truest About You So You Can Truly Embrace Your Life. And so do you think that people reject their lives or are in denial too much? Is that something that you talk about a lot in, in therapy? their lives well i mean in other words the reality that instead of making the best out of it do you think there there are a lot of uh, unresolved conflicts and and too much denial and not really accepting your lot well it's a great question i mean you know one of one of the uh the definitions of suffering that I've started to settle into is uh, resistance to what is. Um, you know, the idea that we all have pain in our life, but suffering is resisting it rather than learning how to live our way through it. Um, and of course, you have to be wise about that, right? Because um, there are some things in our lives that need to change. If we are in an abusive relationship, that needs to change, mm. right? Um, if we are um, suffering from a disease, that needs to be treated. Um, but the reality is um, that most of those things um, if we can be present to the pain that they're causing um, we'll actually be much more motivated to change the things that need to be changed and be wise about not changing the things that don't and just learning how to surrender to those um, and so I do think I, I more and more um, the question that I'm asking all the time is what am I avoiding right now what am I resisting right now and how can I walk towards it and through it um, and uh, and, and uh, to me that is 
the, a way of relearning our relationship to pain and suffering and mess, and it's so important to growing and, and maturing. And it seems like the big relationship, really, and tying it all together, self-acceptance and childhood, and somehow that goes together in the fact that, I mean, do you think it's a little strange that daddy didn't love me or mommy didn't love me? And you're trying to kind of resolve that conflict and figure that out maybe for the rest of your life if you don't go to therapy. You know, I think I think the reality is, and this is something I um, uh, is so important to communicate, is that that all of us at some point in our lives um, found ourselves disappointed by the people we were looking to 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 love us and to accept us the way that we are, and and that message that that experience is indeed shame, and we took it in and we started to believe that it was true about us, um, and there's you know. There, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong. Uh, in fact, it's totally normal to to feel ashamed, to feel embarrassed, to feel like we're not good enough. Um, but are we willing to start paying attention to that? Not to try to eliminate it from our life, because I don't know if we ever totally get over that. Um, but to just start paying attention to it, so that we are more and more in charge of it, rather than it being in charge of us. As far as that sense of belonging, now you know. Obviously, you go to church. You're a Christian man, and mm-hmm. are you disappointed? A little bit. Maybe you go to a great church, but, you know, even if you don't, um, could you tell me, do you feel there's a little bit, it should be a spiritual hospital. Is there not a sense of belonging, Mm. uh, a sense of accepting people in their brokenness, which you mentioned in your book, in the church? I mean, shouldn't that be where it's at, where we should feel more acceptance and belonging? You know, I think think that's exactly what the the church is meant to be uh, is meant to be a place where we can gather together and be who we truly are and in our mess and our glory and all and um, and, and really show up and be received um, I, I don't know that 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 always does happen in churches I'll, you know, I'll tell you we um, so a couple of years ago as my wife and I were going through this process of you know really embracing our worthiness and clarifying what our, our passions were we made a big move we moved out of the Chicago suburbs and we moved back to my small rural hometown and my wife uh, stepped down from her tenured professor Professorship at Wheaton College wow. and, uh, is now providing services to underserved kids out out here in <laughs> out in Dixon, Dixon Illinois. Um, so we're going to a totally different church now. And you know what's amazing about it? We we tried a couple different churches in town, and um, and this one church we went to. Our kids said, "Are we gonna? Can we go back there next week?" And we thought, "Well, that's that's really weird because it's a very small church with a very aging um, demographic." And we thought, "Okay." And we went back, and finally one Sunday, I was watching my kids interact with the elderly folks in the congregation, and it, it dawned on me: um, my my kids have a lot of friends they don't have a lot of grandparents close by and these older folks were acting like grandparents to my kids and my kids felt um, seen and attended to and cherished and delighted in and uh, and so they wanted to go to church even though we we're in a, a liturgical setting there was no Sunday school the fact that they were being seen and they had a place to belong drew them back and so I to me that is that is the epitome of church let me ask you is there is there such a thing as true self I mean, people think about it, and how can I be my truest self or find myself and things like that? Yeah. And what's your definition of your truest self? Yeah, well, I think of my, I think of my true. I use the words true self and soul interchangeably. Um, I and, and in lovable, one thing that I, I state very clearly is that I see the true self or soul as having. Um, 
part of, of God embedded in it. Um, and so, do I think there's a true self? Yeah, I think we're. I think that true self is created for us. It's a gift. Um, I think we enter the world at, um, with a true self. And it, to me, that's actually one of the most healing parts of being a parent has been to watch three kids come into the world with a true self and to get to watch what it what it looks like to be human before they encounter shame and start to think that who they are isn't good enough and start hiding their true self away um that that that's been eye-opening for me and so convicting to me that we do have a true self that is is good and beautiful and you know um i uh there's just so I could go on all day. I could go on all day. Go ahead. Kids, kids and their true self. <laughs> um, I get paid by the hour, so go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. That's funny. Um, you know, like my my son the other day, I read him a quote that I came across. Um, he's 13 years old, and uh, I read him a quote, and the quote was, uh, "Jesus answered three of the 183 questions asked of him in the Gospels, and yet we have made him the ultimate answer man." The ego prefers kings to wise men. And uh, my son, my 13-year-old, hears that, and without missing a beat, he says, well, and you know those three times he answered the question? He kicked himself later because he wished he'd told a parable instead. (laughs) (laughs) And and to me, that is like, that's that's the epitome of who he is. He's got this quick wit. He's he's wise. He's got the spiritual bent. He he likes to think about things in that way. And that's been in him ever since I've I've known him. And, And our goal as parents is to to help him maintain that connection to that part mm. rather than you know he goes to middle school and all the kids say oh church is stupid and and thinking is 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 nerdy and no we want to help we want to help him maintain that connection to his true self it's funny i think all of us probably have the opportunity to be our true selves and you mentioned your wife and professorship where we do a lot of modeling let's just say yes. on and they say okay well th- that's being successful like i went wow and you said we in college and you know who would want that and and but that might not be her true self. Her, her true self is is helping, and and, and do yeah. we kind of um, is it all the Kardashians' fault, or what, why do we always <laughs> why are we always comparing instead of saying, wait a minute, you know? And when we do something that we love, or when we feel true, or uh, when we're uh, interacting with our gifts and talents, I mean, we feel better. I think don't we have a, a kind of like a thermometer? We know, and it's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I can't blame the Kardashians because I think it was M- Thomas Merton back in the fifties and sixties who first coined the term "true self" and "false oh. self," right? But sorry, Kim, it's not, it's not all their fault, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but no, I do think that there is there's there's that reality that once we encounter shame and b- begin to believe that our true self isn't good enough, we think we have to build a, a self that is, and that's the false self. It's our representative. It's the it's our it's all of our best advertising usually, um, and and that that in a way is the self that goes out and starts to live a life and and at some point for many of us there comes a time where we go well so part of what i'm doing right now is a reflection of my true self but so much of it is a reflection of the self that thought it needed to be to be great to be good enough you know or to to be accomplished or respected or powerful or affluent and uh and i don't i'm realizing now i don't need to be all those things my true self is good enough and i can now begin to live um as much as possible from it uh, and so i think there is a reckoning moment for many of us but i'm not sure that it can happen until after we've, we've sort of had some adventures with our false self i don't know i don't think you're going to be doing therapy much longer it sounds like you're headed to the movies you're on the today show you're on the messiah community radio talk show i mean you may not have to i mean what if what if this was like became a radio program or a television program you couldn't pry me out of the therapy room i i uh the the, the wisdom 
that my clients bring to the therapy room. Um, it, there's, I, I know I help folks, but but they certainly help me. Um, and you know, the most of the ideas in Lovable come out of conversations with my clients as well. So I love it. Um, I don't think I'll ever stop doing it. Um, but you know, my hope. You know, I guess if there's a selfish hope in all of this, it's that I get to write a second book because I love to write. Mm-hmm. Dr. Flanagan, I want to ask you, let's just analyze for a minute Jesus as a counselor, okay? And we look at, mm-hmm. you talk about acceptance and belonging and these type of issues and also brokenness, but now we have the prostitutes and the publicans and the drunkards and even the woman by the well. What does Jesus do right there in meeting people where they are? Yeah. Well, honestly, that those... Those stories of Jesus um, are sort of at the heart of what I describe, what I talk about in Lovable as grace. And so in in Lovable, I describe grace as the presence that sees our true self through all of the mess. Um, and, and I think that's what Jesus is doing there. Um, you know, I had a friend several years ago who was telling me a story about his his kid when he was a toddler and he'd heard his kid retching at night and he went into his his son's room and his son was just covered in vomit mm. and uh, and so he immediately picked his son up and he took him to the bathtub to wash him off and to me there's a beautiful image of of Jesus and of the father saying listen i i know what you are underneath the mess i i that true self is still under there um it is untarnished it is unscathed and i'm here just to wash you off so you can be be what you've always been and still can be underneath that mess so to me that's a beautiful image of the love of jesus and i think that's what he's doing with with those folks who you know the pharisees are saying you can't hang with them they're they're a mess and he's just saying yeah they're they are a mess but i know what they are underneath that mess because I think all Christians need to take that Jesus counseling class and go, because it, it always seems like he loves so much more than we do and accepts people more. And the fact that people who would be ostracized, let's just say, because they don't model what success is or, you know, they hide in their brokenness, which a lot of us do. But he's doing something right. I think we have to learn how to do that. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. And I think uh, I think a lot of that starts with you. Know, people ask me, well, like, how do I... How do I help my kids um, have a sense of worthiness? And my answer is always, it starts with you. Until you know your worthiness, um, you can't see that that divine image and that worthiness in anyone else. And so to me, that critical moment for Jesus is when he's being baptized by John and the skies open up and the voice of God says, this is my beloved son on whom my favor rests. I mean, this is the this is the moment of um, you are worthy. And, and that moment is the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I think it's because it's the beginning of him being able to see the worthiness in everyone else because it's been spoken into him. And uh, and so, yeah, I think that's that's our task as people is I have to learn how to embrace the worthiness within me mm. um, and be connected with the voice of grace within me so I can speak with that voice and see the worthiness in everyone else. Now, if, if we're all hiding from the pain and the brokenness, do we become less lovable? Do we feel less well, lovable and become a, more, think, you know? I think it's a great, you, you, I love the way you said that. Do, do we become less lovable? I think we feel less lovable. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas in lovable is that um, being lovable is a fact, right? And our true self is um, is as real and unchanging as anything else. And so, um, but certainly we feel less lovable. Um, and, and 
the one of the, the startling things I've learned, I think, um, I hate to say anything with too much certainty, but if there's something I'm going to say with certainty, it's this. It's that the voice of grace within us is always speaking, but it is always on the other side, speaking on the other side of our, our shame and our pain and our discomfort. So if we're not willing to move towards those things within us, we can't get reconnected with that voice of grace within us, which is constantly speaking, speaking the name that we are given before all other names, which is lovable. I want to tell you, I'm sure you remember the movie Ordinary People. You are the second person who's mentioned that to me this week, and um, <laughs> I have not seen it. I've got to see Oh, my goodness, you have to. Yeah. That was all about uh, psychotherapy when psychiatrists actually did talk therapy. Now they just give you drugs. Uh, but back then, you know, they didn't. Judd Hirsch played a psychiatrist. Mary Tyler Moore was in the film, and there was someone else I forgot, popular actor. But the whole thing... And, We'll pause right there for just a second because that has to do with Stephen Colbert. Let's go back to him for just a second or two, okay? So you say in your book, not only did he embrace this pain, he learned to love it. And sometimes redeeming our pain is about coming to value it so much that we let it lead us. And part of the issue and the unresolved conflict in the movie Ordinary People with the son, he experienced shame. And his mother, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, always was harping on that. Uh, the pain that he experienced, and the short of it, was a rafting accident with his older brother. And the whole thing was that he let go. His brother held out his hand. He tried to hold on for as long as he could, but he couldn't anymore because he was young and not as strong as his brother. And he, he let go, and all his life he reviewed that over in his head that he was the shame of letting go rather than just understand what was behind that. And finally, in the therapy, he said that um, it was just too painful. It was just too hard to hold on. And Judd Hirsch says, now, can you live with that? Uh, can you live with that? And that was the whole part of it. Once he learned to live with that pain rather than the unresolved conflict of shame and beating yourself up over and over again. I talk a lot. You make sense of that for me, if you would. I love that because, you know, what Judd Hirsch does brilliantly there in that scene is he doesn't he doesn't try to talk him out of that. Like he doesn't try to convince him that that's not true. He just says now you now you have to learn learn to live with that reality. Mm. Um, and I think so much of so much of what we avoid about going back into our shame is there's a grief about it because when we start to really pay attention to it and start to realize and. Kind of encounter some of the ways that we were disappointed as children and and weren't loved for who we are. There's an immense pain that goes along with that, and and a lot of what we're trying to do in our relationships is sort of redo that, right? Like I I was disappointed by the way I was loved when I was a child, so I'm looking for somebody who will sort of offset that, neutralize it by loving me perfectly, and, and so on and so forth. And the reality is that the love we did not get as children um, is love that we can't ever get. That's in the past, and so we have to grieve that that window of getting that kind of parental love oftentimes is past and that now um, we have to learn to live with that and we have to learn to live to into the love that is available to us now um, and so I love that he just didn't try to talk him out of it but said can you can you live with the past yeah and, and I'm sure it's an endless search anyhow where people are always not getting the approval and so let's find it in a job or let's find it in um, some other means, let's just say, and people do that. Well, I have just one last question. I mean, you have a lot of great chapters here, the wound, the search, and the healing, worthiness, you are not enough, let me see, belonging, you are not alone. Do you have a favorite chapter? Uh, that's a point. I've 
never been asked that question. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you. Not even the Today Show asked you that. <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, so one of one of my wife's uh, pet peeves about nonfiction books is that they um, they start start to repeat themselves by the last you know third, um, and so she she sort of challenged me to write a book that continues to build with new ideas um, to the to the climax of the book, and so I guess. Truly, that my favorite chapter of the book is the the last chapter, the final letter, and then the conclusion of the book. Because I wanted to write something that felt like it um, it ended the way that a, a story would end, which is right at the peak of it. So, um, so I, I guess that's a bit of a teaser. I would not encourage anybody to skip ahead to the end of the book, um, but to, don't do it, folks. Don't do it. Don't do it. But uh, but I really those last couple chapters um, they. It was a tremendous grace to, to write those chapters and, and feel like those words were coming coming through me rather than from me. There's so much hurt in the world, and we need so much healing, too. So we really appreciate you writing this book. Kelly Flanagan has been our special guest. The book is called Lovable, Embracing What is Truest About You So You Can Truly Embrace Your Life. And since I'm from Long Island, is it you like to hear doctor, not, not Kelly Flanagan. Call me doctor. Right. Um, Kelly's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll give out the address one more time. drkellyflanagan.com. Go check out the book and, uh, and go buy it today. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me.